We'll hear argument next this morning in case 08-1191, Morrison versus National Australia Bank. Mr. Dubbs. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Given that the issue of uh, subject matter jurisdiction uh, appears not to be in dispute, the issues before the Court today are, first, the scope of Section 10B of the 1934 Exchange Act when applied to alleged fraudulent conduct uh, with respect to financial information that is to be sent to Australia for incorporation into the financial statements of the respondent National Australia Bank, and second, the reasonableness of the application of the statute under these circumstances and, and the uh, norms of enforcement pursuant to the private cause of action or otherwise. I guess there's also the issue of whether, if uh, everybody is agreed, that uh, it is not a jurisdictional question, that's the end of the case. I mean, as I recall, the other side says uh, we shouldn't get to the merits. Uh, Your Honor, it's our view that 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 is a a possible outcome, which, of course, as I understand it, would leave the decision uh, below uh, standing. We have urged in the supplemental brief uh, that it may want to uh, remand uh, for consideration of the change of position of of the Securities and Exchange Commission with respect to the test that they have. But you're you're not pressing that. Now, we still uh, believe that uh, the best uh, way to handle the case is to remand, but we leave that uh, for the Court's uh, uh, discretion. Why uh, wouldn't that simply be going through the motions? The Second Circuit put the wrong label on it, but everything it said could have been plugged into our decision is under Rule 12b-6 rather than 12b-1. Well, Your Honor, the, the uh, question is, and the issue is, uh, inherently somewhat speculative as to what the Second Circuit would do, but we would rely not necessarily only on the subject matter jurisdiction issues uh, being addressed, and Your Honor is quite right that they may say, well, the labels change, but everything else stays the same. What we particularly thought might be instructive for this Court is to hear what the Second Circuit that sits in our nation's financial capital thought of a new uh, fact, and that new fact is that for the first time the Securities and Exchange Commission has come in and said as a matter of administrative deference, the Court should defer to our test in cases like that. Sure, they've uh, submitted amicus briefs in the past. They've done lots of things. But this is the first time they've said, we as the agency responsible for the statute have said this is how court should handle the case. That's what's new and different. But if your honors uh, don't wish to proceed along that line, we're prepared to go forward uh, on, on the merits here today. Well, since me, that isn't worth anything, right? I mean, that's, they haven't well, conducted a rulemaking or anything. They just, well, they haven't conducted just appeared in court. Well, they haven't conducted a, a full rulemaking that would be entitled to Chevron deference, right. but they've done something uh, less than that. And uh, whether it's entitled to deference, Skidmore deference, or something lesser than that uh, is an open point. But uh, so it's, we leave it to the Court's uh, decision as to whether it is just uh, a comp- Except that they don't come out on your side anyway, do they? Well, Your Honor, they come out on our side except for that last turn they make at the end uh, where they uh, they bring in the intervening cause at the end of the, the last act. Uh, other than that uh, — How they, could they come down on your side if they say there is no private right of action? Well, they didn't say there was no private right of action. What they said was there was no private private right of action in this case because of their application of the intervening cause test, which we submit was air and, and clear air in light of the factors that have to go into the intervening We're only talking about this case. I mean, Sorry? We're only talking about this case, right? I mean, if we send it back, we'd send it back to have this case decided. And they've come out against you in this case. They've, so what could — and that is going to change the Second Circuit's view of things, the fact that in addition to their initial opinion, it has been reconfirmed, although on different grounds, by, 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 by the government. Your Honor, there's no reason to send it back. Well, Your Honor, it's, it's up to the court. I mean, it's, it's you're basically uh, educating, making an educated guess as to whether the Second Circuit would pay attention to, to the SEC. In the past, they have. They may not now. Mr. Dubbs, you said something uh, I thought quite revealing in this in your brief. I mean, this case is Australian plaintiff or Australian defendant share, shares purchased in Australia. It has Australia written all over it. And in your reply brief, you said 
if the plaintiff is a foreign securities purchaser, as this one is, Sinochem makes it clear that forum nonconvenience may dictate dismissal of an action brought in the U.S. And taking that, why not, of the applicable laws to this transaction, to this alleged fraud, isn't the most appropriate choice the law of Australia rather than the law of the United States? Uh, so no. Not just the question of the proper form, but the proper law. No, Your Honor. We think that given the scope of Section 10B, uh, American law can and should be uh, applied here, and we respectfully disagree with uh, the observation that this case has Australia written all over it. Indeed, from our point of view, it has Florida written all over it, because Florida is where the numbers were doctored. Florida is where the fraudulent conduct in putting the phony assumptions into the valuation portfolio were done. Uh, everything well, if that, all that were done and it were never communicated, there wouldn't be any violation. Th- that's correct, Your Honor. And the but communication he- was done in Australia <coughs> by the Australian bank. The communication was done between Florida and, uh, and uh, Australia, and the senior management of Homeside in Florida created those numbers with the expectation and the knowledge that those would go into the financial statement. So that means there is substantial conduct in Florida in terms of the fraud. They made the misrepresentation pursuant to what make means pursuant to the 1934 dictionary. They engaged in hardcore fraudulent conduct by doctoring the books, by putting the phony assumptions into the computer model. Without that, there wouldn't have been a phony number. In one sense, it's a one-issue case or a one-number case, which is the mortgage servicing rights number that appears on uh, on the balance sheet uh, at page let's, 11. Let's go back to the question that I asked you about the appropriate form. And you, you seem to give this very case. The plaintiff is a foreign securities purchaser. Uh, when the plaintiff's choice is not is not its home form, the presumption in the plaintiff's favor applies with less force, etc. But so you have a an Australian plaintiff suing in the United States based on shares purchased in Australia, and the lead defendant is the Australian bank. So what what? did you mean when you were referring to Sinochem and form nonconvenience? We meant two things, Your Honor. The first thing we meant was that uh, in addition to the other tests that are proposed, putting Sinochem at the beginning of the train would sort out some of these questions in general. That's in general. As to our particular case, we believe we would win a form nonconvenience argument, though one was never made, and that was not explored by any district judge. And we would win that because the statute specifically provides in Section 10B that fraud can be caused in any number of ways, three ways, including through the mails, through foreign or interstate commerce, or over an exchange. And that fraud was caused in Florida, and the mails were used, and it was in foreign or interstate commerce. And the people who committed the fraud on a nuts and bolts level are the uh, senior management who are defendants from Homeside Bank uh, in Florida. So to that extent, it is a Florida case. And we also think that any district judge in looking at a forum non-motion would also look at the various interests of National Australia Bank and Homeside in the United States to judge the overall fairness of letting the suit proceed against them and to counter the issue that this is really all about Australia. Well, wouldn't so, your clients have an adequate remedy under Australian law in Australian in the Australian court system? We might or we might not, but that is not determinative. Well, let's assume that, that they do not. Let's assume that on the facts of this case, they could not prevail under Australian law in the Australian court system. Then what United States interest is there that there, should override that? There is a strong United States interest that's on two levels. The first strong United States interest deals with the conduct at issue here, namely the conduct in Florida by home site. This was the sixth largest mortgage service provider in the United States. If we had only home site's conduct, nothing else, 
there wouldn't be any violation of 10B. We do not agree with that, Your Honor. We believe that they made a representation by creating the false numbers or otherwise it's within the scope of the statute. What they did is create a deceptive device. But is there, is, is, nothing has happened, though. Suppose it had been caught by the Australian bank and they didn't act on it. Your, Your Honor, that goes to a different element uh, of the cause of action. That doesn't go to the scope of the statute. That goes to how the private cause of action is enforced. Now, I can see your argument that a big component of this fraud was what went on in Florida. But it needed to be disclosed to the public. It needed to be put out there. And that wasn't done in Florida by the Florida defendants. It was done in Australia, and we can prove that. And uh, the point is we are not uh, — all we are proving through doing that is the effects of the fraud in Florida. To use Professor Beale's example, where you have poison candy in one jurisdiction, that poison candy is sent to another jurisdiction, and in the first jurisdiction there's a law that says, thou shalt not make poison candy — through the exercise of legislative jurisdiction, that statute in the first jurisdiction is appropriate, and both jurisdictions uh, have an interest in that. Now, if we're in the poison candy jurisdiction and we're bringing a case about poison candy, if the statute in addition says you have to show some harm for the, from the poison candy, indeed, you might, as a matter of proof, have to show effects from that other forum. But that's different than regulating conduct in the second forum uh, or anything else in the second forum. That is simply uh, looking at uh, the statute or the legal prescription against making poison candy. And we say Section 10B is like the poison candy statute. What are you saying of I'd like you to follow that up specifically. That is, in my mind, the difficult issue in this case is not the jurisdictional issue under principles of international law. It's the question of the scope of the statute. And there, the things against you are three. One is Professor Sachs's article, which I'd like to know your answer to. The second is in Judge Friendly's two opinions. The first opinion the second one, rather, Birch. He says if you had foreign exchange and foreign plaintiffs, uh, uh, the, the, and uh, there, there was no foreign plaintiff, a security issued over a foreign exchange, even that uh, fraud takes place totally in the United States, the statute wouldn't cover it. That's friendly, where the start of this thing was. And the third thing is what he says in Lisco. He says we cannot see any sound reason for not taking your position, at least for the plaintiffs or Americans, okay? Now, France, Britain, and Australia have filed briefs in this case, giving what they consider very sound reasons, which are reasons that Judge Friendly never considered. And those three reasons, as we know, is they point to a number of conflicts, is if you win, how that will interfere with their efforts to regulate their own securities markets. Right. That's all one question. Professor Sachs, Friendly and Birch, and Friendly and Lisco. But that's what I'd like to hear your answers. I'll try to keep the subparts in mind. Uh, why don't we start from the end and try to work backwards? Uh, perhaps one of the most important uh, parts of the record is the Solicitor General's view uh, that as a general matter, and I will get to the specifics, I'm not ducking that, but as a general matter, the enforcement of the securities laws, unlike the antitrust laws, has not historically, and today they do not believe, uh, runs, uh, raises a substantial risk of interstate conflict. Now, as to the specific briefs that Your Honor uh, referenced, if we look at those briefs and we look at those compared to uh, what happened in Hartford Fire, those briefs and let's focus on Australia's for the moment, because that's the country we're talking about. Australia's brief essentially says they have a regulatory system that we, that may, we may or may not have been able to litigate uh, this cause of action in Australia, but let's assume that we could. They are not saying, they had, did not say in that brief that there was some fundamental conflict like the plurality found in Hartford Fire, nor did they say that there was the kind of conflict that comes up in the application of 403 sub H of the restatement, which Justice Scalia looked to in his 
uh, opinion in Hartford Fire. So there is not the kind of conflict that uh, leads necessarily, necessarily, to uh, not uh, reasonably applying uh, the statute. The reason there's not is that because, one, there is not a rule in Australia that one has to uh, abide by and a rule in the United States that one has to abide by that are contradictory. At most, what you have is you have a clear rule in the United States that says thou shalt not commit fraud in Florida through either the foreign or interstate commerce, the mails, or through an exchange. And on the other side uh, of the uh, equation, what you have is they, maybe they could have brought suit over here, and we have a robust uh, regulatory system and a robust litigation system, more power to them. But that doesn't mean, saying that, that doesn't mean that the first state where the poison candy was made suddenly has no interest no, in but that. For, but, but, but Australia says, look, and it's up to us to decide whether there has been a misrepresentation, point one, and whether it's been relied upon by the, uh, by the plaintiffs, point two. And we should be able to decide that, and, and we don't want it decided by a foreign court. You're talking about a misrepresentation, if there was one in this case, made in Australia to Australian purchasers. It ought to be up to us to decide that issue. And here you're dragging uh, the American courts into it. Well, let me deal with the dragging in part in a minute, because that's — subliminally very important to, to the case. But let me address the, uh, the direct uh, uh, question. Is the Australians uh, may believe that, uh, but the question is, was there a misrepresentation both in the United States and possibly in Australia? If there was in Australia, that's for the Australians. That's dealing with the effects of eating the poison candy. But we say a misrepresentation was made in the United States. Not to these plaintiffs. Sorry? You, you have to join the misrepresentation to the plaintiff. We the have only to. misrepresentation to these plaintiffs was made in Australia by an Australian company. There are two ways to connect the fraud to the plaintiffs. The one is the in-connection-with requirement that deals with conduct, which we meet, and this uh, Court has construed very broadly in Dabit, uh, in Zanford, in any number of cases. That's number one. Number two, assuming that the scope of the statute is broad enough to cover the conduct in Florida, we then get to the second question, which is the reasonableness of the application of the statute, and without a conflict, we would then look at to the interests of the United States and compare them to the Australians. And the Australians can say, we can, you know, we can go after eating that poison candy. And we say, fine, if you want to, that's great. But that doesn't mean we can't go after uh, the act of poisoning the candy in Florida. It isn't the issue. Uh, the, the, the issue for the Australians is we want to determine whether there has been a misrepresentation or not. They we can, don't want the determination of whether there has been a misrepresentation on the Australian exchange and whether Australian purchasers relied upon that misrepresentation to be determined by an American court. And we say, more power to you, you can decide that question. The question Not if it's decided here, unless you want to say the Australian court, to say the United States taking this case is so outrageous that we will not respect its judgment. And that's a, a factor, too. I mean, it's what conflict of laws is all about is you have two jurisdictions, both with an interest in applying their own law, but sometimes one defers to the other. That's correct, Your Honor. And the question is, should there be deferral in this case? And we say if you apply uh, the standards of, uh, of Hartford Fire or the standards of the restatement, you don't end up in deferral. You end up in prosecution of the Section 10B cause of action in Florida. And you do that for a couple of different reasons. First, you look at the magnitude of the conduct in Florida, the size of this. This was a $1.75 billion write-down in a portfolio. You have a portfolio of $187 billion worth of mortgages sitting down in Jacksonville, Florida. Those are all uh, mortgages on American homes, two million American homes. So this is not just Australia, Australia, Australia. That's what's in the portfolio, and that's what's being misrepresented. 
And when they uh, doctor the numbers and send them to Australia, it's a misrepresentation of that. In addition, you have the overall arching consideration of is it appropriate to sue National Australia Bank in the United States at, at, a, at a more abstract level? And the answer to that we submit is yes. They have invested, if you care to look, it's on the uh, — uh, SA-11 uh, and SA-41 of the supplemental appendix, they invest, they have $25 billion worth of assets here. They own a bank in Michigan. They have a huge trading operation on Park Avenue that trades billions of dollars in derivatives every day. This is not the situation. This is not the stereotype of, of a gotcha, where you have but a company Those that derivatives are not at issue here, right? Well, they're only at — Zoom — I'm sorry, go ahead. They're only at issue because, uh, in the following sense, which is that th the position on the mortgage servicing rights was hedged in New York. When the hedge came undone, there were losses in New York on the other side of the hedge. That goes to the point of were there any effects in the United States, because there seems to be some confusion uh, on that. There were some effects here from the hedge. There were some effects on in the ADR market, but we're I not, we're not di disputing that most of the effects were over there. Miss, um, Mr. Dobbs, Morrison, the first-name plaintiff, was uh, a derivative holder. And uh, no, Your Honor, he was the holder of an ADR. The derivatives come in because they are the activity in New York that is the other side of the transaction. Home side. Do you have you have two uh, classes of plaintiffs? One, the Australians who bought their shares in Australia. Then you have Morrison, who has an ADR, and who is dismissed because he wasn't able to show damages. That's true. There, there are no Americans uh, left. This is strictly Australians. So what U.S. investor was harmed? The, the question is, were there effects on the U.S. market? There were U.S. investors who were in all likelihood harmed, but none have stepped forward uh, with respect to ADR holders. But if the question in the abstract is, were there uh, economic effects from this transaction in the United States? And the answer is, is yes. There were uh, fallout from on, on the derivative side, which was the other side, which was the other side, in effect, the short side of what the long position was, which was the $187 billion worth of mortgages in Florida that what's, is what the portfolio uh, uh, consisted of. Oh, what do you, what do you, do you want to, do you want to finish? No, Your Honor. Oh, then, I mean, the, I, I can see, I'll give you all that. Uh, th that isn't what's bothering me. I think you're right so far as what you've argued. But the part that I think is most difficult is why I, I shorthand referred to Professor Sachs's article. Yes. Because what Australia is actually saying is what we don't like about, about the American system. You know, they're, co they're common criticisms of class actions. We say, first of all, the American rule means even if our companies here are right, that they're going to have to pay their legal fees. We don't like punitive damages. Uh, we don't like the way of the opt-out. And these are all our citizens, and we don't want to subject our companies on our exchange to that stuff. Now, Fine. They have a reason on their side. Then Professor Sachs says, read the statute. It, because there are, it was never intended to cover that kind of stuff. Now, that's what I'd like you to address specifically. Well, it was, it, there are two issues. The statute was intended to cover that kind of stuff if the antecedent of stuff is fraud in Florida. Now, that's a separate question from how we deal with the private right of action in these circumstances. Now, let's back up. The general criticism of these cases is that they're gotcha cases. You put in a little bit, and then all of a sudden the private bar comes and attacks you. I mean, that's the stereotype. Well, the stereotype is wrong, and it's important to understand why the stereotype is wrong. Because if all you have is a very modest investment in the ADR market, one percent, like the, my friends uh, from NAB. Those cases get bounced at the beginning on personal jurisdiction, as they did in the District of New Jersey and scores in the Nova Gold case. We're not aware of any case where if all you've got is that little toehold that you stay in, you get bounced by, uh, on personal jurisdiction. And to pick up on uh, the discussion that I was having with Justice uh, Ginsburg, 
We thought that in addition to that, if the Court wanted to send signals with respect to uh, these kinds of cases, if you put, as you can, Sinochem at the beginning of the train, even more of these cases, uh, if they are uh, fallacious, are going to be screened out of the system. So the point is that we can all tell our Australian friends that there are very rigid safeguards in place so that this horror story in reality doesn't happen. And it has not been proven to happen. It is an attractive myth, but it hasn't happened. Those cases go out and they I'm not sure that it happens uh, in advance of considerable discovery. I I would agree that the judge can — Confine discovery to form nonconvenience or, or personal jurisdiction. But uh, in, in, in these cases, one of the things we're really talking about is the burden of discovery. That's the cost of litigation. You, you know that. I, I do know that, and let me answer briefly because I want to reserve my time for rebuttal. I disagree with the, your fundamental observation, Justice Kennedy. These cases are paid attention to by the district judges, and they go out early. They go out early on personal jurisdiction. There's not a lot of discovery on that. They go out early uh, on if Sinochem gets applied faithfully, it would go out early on that if there's a close question. And then you go to the 12B6, and pursuant to the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act, one of the whole purposes of that is no discovery, no discovery until after the motion to dismiss is decided. So it, it is not true that there's a lot of discovery, there's a lot of transaction costs before we know the answer to one of the threshold questions, which is should this case be in our system or not. That can be handled, and it is being handled on a daily basis, notwithstanding uh, you know, some stereotypes. Now, my final point with respect to uh, uh, Professor Sachs' articles and some of the other articles is they, in effect, if they advocate a rule, which many of them do, which it should be limited to exchanges, that goes back to my threshold point of the scope of the statute. And it takes an eraser to the statute, and it says it's only exchanges. It's not in connection with foreign or interstate commerce or through the mails. It's limited contrary to the express words of the statute in a way that the statutory con- construction we don't uh, believe can uh, stand it. Now, there are other legitimate ways of cabining the private cause of action, but that, if you're faithful to the statute, we submit that is not one of them. Thank you, Mr. Dubbs. Mr. Conway. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The judgment of the Court of Appeals should be affirmed for two reasons. First, petitioners have identified nothing in the text of Section 10b that overcomes the presumption against extraterritoriality or the charming Betsy rule. The statute should thus be construed not to apply to transactions and shares of foreign issuers on foreign exchanges. Second, unlike the rights of action that this Court has addressed in other extraterritoriality cases, the Section 10b right is purely implied. Congress didn't intend for this right of action to exist even domestically, let alone extraterritorially. Given the threat that the Section 10b implied right presents to the sovereign authority of other nations, as reflected in the amicus briefs of Australia, the United Kingdom, France, and the diplomatic note from the Swiss government, the Court should construe the implied right not to extend to claims of purchasers and sellers of securities of foreign issuers on foreign markets. The two clear statement rules are, obviously, the presumption against extraterritoriality and the charming Betsy rule. Both require an affirmative intention of the Congress clearly expressed before the statute can be applied to apply to foreign uh, transactions or to uh, in, in a manner that infringes upon the sovereign authority of other nations. My friends don't identify anything in the statute that comes even close to a clear statement. They principally rely on the definition of interstate commerce, but as this Court said in Aramco, that kind of boilerplate simply doesn't suffice to overcome the presumption against extraterritorial. What, 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 is, what is your test for whether, whether it's being applied internationally or not? Well, our, our, our test is that at a minimum, uh, Section 10B should be held not to apply to transactions uh, involving uh, the shares of foreign issuers on foreign exchanges, because that presents the greatest danger of conflict with foreign law, particularly in the context of the modern Section 10B 
implied right, which has the fraud on the market presumption and holds issuers liable, as here, for example, two and a half for two and a half years of trading all in an Australian exchange. That's a massive transfer of wealth that the petitioners here are seeking an American court to effect. And that is a, is basically, it's a direct form of market regulation that Australia has not seen fit to impose upon itself. And so. And that, at that point, supposing the class of plaintiffs included a group of Americans who were shareholders of the Australian bank and who, but who purchased their stock uh, over the Australian exchange. Uh, we would, well, we would submit that, that that rule should be the same, that they should, they should not also, they should not be allowed to sue under Section 10B. They, 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 they you know, those people in, uh, chose to purchase on the Australian exchange. And in terms of the threat to uh, international comedy, I think it would be uh, probably take, I, I don't think other countries would take nicely to a, to a rule of law that would allow Americans essentially to bring their rules, their law, their remedies, fraud on the market, what have you, to foreign countries. What, what reason for it, for it, the reasons for the strongest one for it, the strongest example against you, it seems to me, is Judge Friendly's example. Schmidt, a citizen of Germany, flies to New York, he meets Jones in the hotel, and Jones says, I have a bridge I want to sell you. Look out the window. He said, you own the Brooklyn Bridge? Yep. And that's a lie. And here's what you do. You invest by buying shares in my company sold on the German exchange. Okay? Yes. Conduct took place in the United States, a terrible fraud. This is contrary to fraud. And says, uh, I think, uh, uh, Judge Friendly and others, it should apply at least where Schmidt is an American citizen. And uh, Professor Sachs says, no, not even then. But what do you do with that case? The fraud took place totally here. Well, I, 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 I d- disagree with that, Your Honor. I think the fraud is carried out when the transaction occurs in a foreign country. But I do agree with you. Professor Sachs is absolutely Sign the paper here in New York. Well, yes. Sign the paper right here and give me the money because I have an urgent appointment. Yeah. Uh, that, y- yes, Your Honor. That, that's a- <laughs> That's a much different case, obviously, than the fraud on the market case that we have here. But, Your Honor, yes, that, that is a stronger circumstance. Yeah, but, but your position and hers is that's no more a valid claim than this one or any other one we dream up. That's why it's a pure example, and I want to know how you feel about it. And well, uh, I, think that, I think the problem is in order to have that conduct swept within the statute, you have to ignore the language and the presumption against extraterritoriality. If you go to Petition Appendix 78, that has those texts of Section 10B, and Section 10B um, uh, refers to the use or employment of any manipulative manipulative device or contrivance, uh, and it's in connection with the purchase or sale of any security registered on a national securities exchange. Or any other. Any security. Uh, Or, read the next word. That's correct. Any security not so registered. And this Court has held, it has held in cases like Aramco, uh, American Banana, uh, Lauritsen, that the words any and every words of universal scope do not, do not mean that these things, any, something referred to is anything anywhere else in the world. And, for example, the Court in Small against the United States, in a case where the presumption against extraterritoriality didn't even really apply, the Court held that in a statute you normally assume that the things being referred to are things in the United States. Is now, the government going to tell us that um, its test, which differs from the foreign exchange test, is based uh, on considerations like those suggested in Justice Breyer's Brooklyn Bridge hypothetical? I think they do. I think they, they look to, I think their view is that the, that the statute is vague, and so you have to do essentially what Judge Friendly did and the Second Circuit did for many years, is you have to make, you have to make do and decide what the best rule is. And, and we, with, with respect to the government, that is essentially doing what this Court has said under the presumption against extraterritoriality uh, the Court shouldn't do. That's essentially legislating, trying to figure out what Congress would have done had a particular problem. Would the, the new other? limitations on discovery uh, give you substantial protection were we to adopt the government's test or, say, the foreign exchange test with a subset exception for the, uh, that, that takes account of the, of the government's test? Um, Your Honor, I think the problem with uh, the government's test and with the Second Circuit's test is that it, it, it would still allow uh, the application of U.S. law in a manner that would infringe the sovereign authority of other nations. And I can give an example. There was a case over the summer that the petitioners attached to their first 
uh, supplemental brief on the petition for certiorari, and it's a case called CP Ships. And it's an interesting case because it involved a Canadian company with headquarters in Britain and most of whose shares traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And what happened there was that the CEO spent time in — it was a shipping company who spent time in Miami running the show from Miami. And the, the Court of Appeals for the Eleventh Circuit, in a ruling that it held was consistent with the Second Circuit's decision in this case, held that nonetheless the, the application of U, U.S. law could be applied to transactions of, of, of foreign plaintiffs on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Well, are, are, it, it, is it a consideration that this discovery alone would be uh, an, an offense to foreign Yes, states? discovery alone. Yes, Your Honor, discovery alone. I think the French brief, for example, uh, points that out. I think a number of the briefs, there have been blocking statutes that have been enacted uh, by various countries because of uh, what they deem to be the offensive uh, 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 scope of discovery. In France, you're really only allowed to obtain evidence that is actually admissible in trial. Uh, I'm not sure how you interpret the language that you that you just read. Uh, when you say uh, to use or employ in connection with the purchase or sale of any security registered on a national security exchange or any security not so registered. Now, is it your point that in order to avoid uh, in international extension of it, it should apply only to securities what? It should only be applied. Securities purchased and sold in the United States? That, that that, that's correct, Your Honor. I think that's a fair reading of the statute. And, okay. and, and, if, and this Court is required under both the presumption against extraterritoriality under its decisions and the Charming Betsy rule to interpret a statute, take the permissible construction of the statute that is least likely to result in the extraterritorial application of the law. Purchased or, or, purchased or sold. Purchased, purchased or sold, Your Honor. What, what if it's not — what if it, what if — what if the fraud produces neither a purchase nor a sale, but induces somebody to hold on to stock that otherwise the, purpose, the person would have disposed of? Well, I, I don't know that that would state a claim, a, a private claim, under blue-chip stamps. And, um, and, any, and, and, and if, the, if the share or the securities are held abroad, if it's a foreign security, and, and I think the liability of it, in that hypothetical, I'm assuming that it's a foreign security held by a foreigner, um, that really it would be something that would be subject to foreign law, whether or not Australia wants to represent, hold, rec recognize holder claims of the sort that this Court rejected in blue chip stamps. That's a question for Australia to decide. On these same facts, if you had, uh, altering the, uh, the, according to the, the hypothetical, you had U.S. plaintiffs uh, who purchased uh, National Australia Bank uh, ADRs, on the New York Exchange, you don't doubt that they can sue, do you? No, and, and in fact, we told the district court we did not move to dismiss on extraterritoriality grounds the claims of Mr. Morrison, who inexplicably is still here. Um, we argued that Mr. Morrison's claims uh, should be defeated on the grounds that he had no damages, which was a absolutely um, ironclad calculation best based on a, on a provision of the PSLRA. And we also argued that all of the claims should be dismissed for failure to plead fraud with the requisite particularity under the PSLRA. But we certainly um, do not dispute that when a company like ours registers shares on, you know, registers shares with the SEC, ADRs with the SEC and lists them on a New York stock exchange, it's subjecting itself to New York, I mean, new U.S. law for purposes of those Presumably that would impose the same discovery on the bank as the suit in this case. It, it could, Your Honor. That's absolutely true. But on the other hand, I mean, a lot of the other aspects of, of, of this litigation, which this Court has, you know, noted that is, is potentially highly vexatious. I mean, that's only 1.1 percent of the flow of the total um, equity securities of, of the National Australia Bank. So the dangers of, of the threat of, 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 of coerced settlements is much, much less. It's a much, much easier case to deal with if, 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 if you're only dealing with the ADRs. Now, if, if another company decides to list half of its equity on the New York Stock Exchange, well, it, it, can, it makes the determination for itself how much of this kind of litigation it wants to um, subject itself. Suppose there were litigation with substantial allegations of uh, uh, wire, wire fraud violations as predicate for RICO violations, and the case begins to proceed. And then there's a second cause of action under the securities law. Would, <clears throat> would the fact that there's going to be discovery and substantial litigation in, in the United States courts um, be a factor in retaining uh, the, the securities violation in this suit, or would the test be just the same in your view? I, I, think, the I think you have to take 
each statute separately. Um, you have to look at what the language of the statute says, whether it, it admits of an extraterritorial reading, and whether that, extra, frankly, whether that extraterritorial reading is required and compelled. If there is any other possible construction, as the Court said in, in Charming Betsy, the Court is required to accept that construction, accept the construction that doesn't result in extraterritorial application or doesn't it result in the sovereign. On, on the extraterritorial presumption against it, um, your colleague on the other side tells us that in all the cases where the presumption applied, all of the conduct was uh, someplace else. And they give the Aramco case and said that that was a, an employee hired in, was it Saudi Arabia? Uh, Everything happened outside the country. Well, Here, the, you, I mean, the, you really true. have to concede that a component of the alleged fraud occurred in Florida. We do concede that some of the conduct that ultimately, you know, led to, in a, in a but-for causal relationship to what happened in Australia occurred in the United States, but that's true of a lot of other cases. For example, Aramco, uh, the, the Mr. Brulezian was hired in Houston. In, 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 so was the, um, the cook in uh, Foley Brothers against Florida. And in Microsoft against AT&T, Basically, all the conduct, the relevant conduct, was in the United States because what, this, what Section 271F prescribed in Microsoft was the shipment, the supply in or from the United States of a component of a patented invention. And what this Court held in Microsoft was that notwithstanding AT&T's argument that, hey, this, the presumption against extraterritoriality doesn't really apply because this is just regulating the supply in and from the United States, this Court held that the presumption against extraterritoriality applied because what would happen is a single act of supply would result in a springboard for liability each time a, a disk was put into a computer abroad. And that's exactly analogous to the circumstances in this case where what we said, what happened was some, some allegedly false information was transmitted to Australia. It was then republished in annual reports, print, 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 sent out to the, sent out to the, the Australian market and resulted in, allegedly, as they would have it, result in liability every single time somebody purchase, purchases a share of stock of the National Australia Bank on the Australian Securities Exchange. And so that is exactly analogous to, to Microsoft against AT&T. Um, Again, another point I think that's relevant is the uh, is Section 30 of the Exchange Act. Um, Congress did not make a clear statement in Section 10. It did make clear statements in Section 30. Section 30A addresses uh, transactions on foreign exchanges. Section 30 as a whole is entitled Foreign Exchanges. And Section 30A makes it, makes, gives the SEC power to promulgate regulations that, that apply to uh, brokers and dealers who affect transactions of securities on uh, foreign exchanges if those transactions are transactions of, of shares of U.S. issuers. And that, that for, for, for reference, the, the, the text of Section 30 is, is at uh, page 19 of the law professor's brief. And Section 30B also, um, it, it, it says that, uh, that the SEC can regulate, the author regulate um, businesses' uh, insecurities uh, of, of businesses and securities that, that are abroad, but only to the extent the SEC finds it necessary to prevent evasion of the Act domestically. And so Congress made two clear statements in Section 30. It did not make any clear statement in Section 10. Well, is that your only point, or is your point also that you wouldn't need Section 30 if, uh, if 10B were, that's that's, were read as broadly? As that's absolutely right. There, the reading, my friend's reading of Section 30 would render Section 10B, uh, I mean, the reading of Section 10B would render Section 30 um, superfluous. And there are other provisions of, that are in the Exchange Act where Congress has made clear statements to show that it can make clear statements. Section 30, Cap A, which immediately follows Section 30, is the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. So Congress knows. If Congress, if there is a loophole, and that's what this Court said in Microsoft against AT&T. If there is some kind of loophole that presents some kind of a problem that Congress needs to be fixed, Congress can do it. Congress can do it with a clear statement. Uh, in sum, Your Honors, um, uh, country, uh, nations of the world do things differently. They, 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 they have different rules of liability. You see in the, in the amicus briefs different uh, rules of materiality, different rules of disclosure. And, and some rely on, on public enforcement more than others. The French rely on l'action publique, as they say. 
And some nations approach ours in their generosity to plaintiffs. Australia allows opt-out class actions. So does Canada. Canada allows opt-out class actions. It dispenses with, for example, uh, the uh, 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 proof of reliance. It it dispenses with um, Cyanar in some cases. Yet it it does all that, but it restricts liability to for one one million dollars or five percent of a. A, 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 a How specifically does this hurt the other countries? What we'd say on their reading of it is Congress has said, look, if some terribly bad conduct happens in the United States, they lie through their teeth, and you, whoever you are in the world, who buy some shares and as a result you're hurt, we'll give you a remedy. Come to us. Now, how does that hurt Australia? Well, it, it hurts Australia. Or France or England or any of these other. It, exactly the same way uh, this Court said it hurts in Empergran. In Empergran, this Court noted that, that a reading of the rule that would have allowed, a reading of, of the FTAIA that would have allowed uh, f- uh, foreign plaintiffs to come and sue for, for, for foreign vitamins transactions in a foreign country would essentially allow plaintiffs to avoid the, 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 the narrower uh, rules of liability and the narrower remedies that other nations provide. And that's exactly true here, where, you know, for example, Australia does not permit fraud on the market class actions. It doesn't allow, it doesn't recognize the fraud on the market presumption. And as I said, for example, Canada restricts these actions. It has generous uh, 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 liability rules and allows opt-out class actions, but it, set, it caps damages at 5 percent of an issuer's market capitalization, or $1 million, whichever is greater. And so that's the, that's the problem. Is if it's, it's not just substance, but it's remedy. Other nations want to do things in different ways. They should be allowed to. What is going on here is essentially a Brandeisian experiment, experiment on, a, on a global scale. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing because it enables countries to judge for themselves what kind of rules they want to have for people who buy shares on their own exchanges. And to apply Section 10B in cases like this would cut that experiment short. It would amount to exactly the sort of legal imperialism that this Court rejected rightly in Empigran. The Court should reject it here as well, and it should affirm the judgment of the Court of Appeals. I thank the Court. Thank you, Mr. Conway. Mr. Roberts. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case presents two distinct questions. First, whether the fraud alleged by petitioners violated Section 10B, and second, whether petitioners may bring a private action. In our view, the alleged fraud violated Section 10B because significant conduct material to the fraud's success occurred in the United States. There are, there are a lot of moving parts in that test. You know, significant conduct, material, you require it to have a direct causal relationship. Doesn't the complication of that kind of defeat the whole purpose? Uh, no, Your Honor, uh, we don't think so. In terms of the, of the direct cause part, which uh, it will be uh, the, the significant limit on private actions, as this case illustrates, uh, the uh, district courts, even accepting the allegations in uh, a plaintiff's complaint, will often be able to dismiss the suit on the pleading for failure to satisfy uh, that test. It's, it's not a difficult uh, Test to That's apply. only for the private. That's right. Um, and um, in terms of, of the other uh, test, uh, again, I don't think it's that complicated. The, the significance part of it is essentially trying to assess the amount of the conduct. Well, what, if, what if significant elements of the fraud occur in four different countries? If, if, if the, the critical question is whether there's significant uh, conduct here that's material to the fraud success. And the reason for that is if Section 10B didn't cover that kind of conduct, then that would risk allowing the United States to become a base for orchestrating securities frauds for export. It would allow things like masterminds in the United States engineering international boiler room schemes in which they direct agents in foreign countries to make fraudulent representations that victimize investors. So it's, in not, it's easy to apply this, you think? Now, on your theory, I guess, Schmidt in my, is in Germany, and we have our Brooklyn Bridge. I, I, okay, now wait. What happens is he calls Schmidt on the telephone, Jones, and he says, I own the Brooklyn Bridge. Actionable, right? Direct. Under your test. Correct? Schmidt is in Germany. Yeah, Schmidt's I mean, in Germany. He calls him up. The defrauder is in Germany. You know, all everything, you have to assume he's going to buy the, the thing on the exchange in Germany, but uh, the, the fraud is in Brooklyn. 
he's lying about he doesn't really own the Brooklyn Bridge. So he calls Smith. I'm interested in car. He calls Schmidt. It's causation. That's what your last pages of your brief. Focus on that. Right. He calls him, and he lies to him. Actionable. I'm sorry, uh, Your Honor. On your I theory. You if everybody's in Germany? No. <laughs> you have to go back to my Brooklyn Bridge example. Everything is hatched in your boiler room. Okay. And, and they communicate the lie by calling Schmidt in Berlin on the telephone directly. Okay. Direct Schmidt is the German. He's Schmidt, in Schmidt is in the German. German. That's, that's <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. The, I'm looking at the, the last. The question is, is there significant conduct in the United no. States? And there's I'm no not, significant I'm focusing conduct. on the last pages of your brief where you turn this whole thing on the directness of the causation. That's right. And the, the SEC would be able to take action if there's significant conduct in the United States. I, I'm accepting that for a moment. What's bothering me, taking off from what the Chief Justice said, is the feasibility of your test. Your test, it seems to me, on causation would say that when you phone Schmidt and lie to him, he can sue. But when you phone your parent company, knowing that they will put it in the prospectus and Schmidt will read it, you can't sue. And then what occurs to me is suppose you phoned a reporter or suppose you phoned your parent company and you knew they would tell a reporter. I'm focusing on the practicality of your causation test. If the conduct is directed or controlled from the United States, then it would, then the direct causation test would be, would be met. Um, the critical question is, does the conduct in the United States have a close enough connection? You think connection? that's the question here. You think the question is whether this really took place in Florida. I didn't think that was the question. In terms of the private plaintiff suing, in our view, the question is whether the United States conduct has a close enough connection to their, uh, to, to, uh, their injury. Right, let's skip, skip my question, because other people may have. If the plaintiffs in this case had clearly alleged in their complaint that nobody in Australia reviewed the numbers that were sent from Florida to any degree. They just directly copied them. Some low-level clerk directly copied them. Would the direct cause test be met? Yes, if the action was just ministerial um, overseas, it would, it would be met. Again, the, the critical question, uh, in our view, under the direct cause test is, was there culpable conduct in the United States that's directly responsible for the, uh, for the plaintiff's injury? So they well, give no they, weight to the fact that it was on the Australian exchange? The, the fact that the transaction happens on the Australian exchange yes. is not dispositive, because if if uh, somebody in the United States is directly uh, is, is executing the fraud, uh, if, if it turned on just a transaction on the Australian exchange, then a domestic investor could be injured by a fraud that's hatched entirely here, that's executed entirely here, and he's tricked into executing a transaction on an overseas exchange. Mr. Roberts, can I, because your time is running out, there's a basic question here. You are asking us to make a distinction between what the SEC can sue for and what a private party can sue for. Congress did that with respect to aiders and abettors. Is there any other uh, instance in which we have made a distinction? Yes, the SEC has a claim, but the private litigant doesn't. Yes, the the, the uh, private litigants are, have numerous uh, elements that they have to show that the SEC doesn't have to show reliance, loss, loss causation. Um, all of those go to the causal link between the injury and, uh, and the fraud. And we think that the direct uh, injury requirement is an appropriate application of those more general causation requirements in the context of transnational frauds. I am frankly less concerned with your, your test for the private cause of action, the direct cause test. I, I guess I could work with that. Then I am with your test for, uh, for the jurisdiction of the, uh, of the SEC, which is sort of a, a totality of the circumstances test. Doesn't seem to me that's an appropriate test for a jurisdictional question. You don't want to spend time limiga- uh, litigating the totality of the circumstances? Well, we don't think it's a, uh, a jurisdictional question in the sense of the subject matter, uh, jurisdiction, Your Honor. It's a, a test about the, uh, scope of the statutory coverage. And well, it's okay. true that bright line rules 
It, it's true the bright line rules um, are easier to administer, um, but uh, the uh, there's a danger in bright line rules for fraud prohibitions because they can provide a roadmap for evasion of the statute. Do you have and any indication <clears throat> that our friends around the world are comfortable with your test? Well, the briefs that have been filed by uh, Australia and uh, the United Kingdom and France are limited to the private right of action. They base their what they want to do is to limit the private rights. Um, and I think the uh, United Kingdom brief uh, specifically uh, says that um, it thinks that SEC action um, could be appropriate here, and that's a reason why, um, if the court adopts the uh, a limit on the private actions, that it need not um, it need not be concerned about uh, the possibility that that fraud would be launched in the United States or directed in the United States, uh, and it couldn't be uh, addressed. I guess we don't have to say anything about uh, about what the government can do, do we? Uh, no, Your Honor, and yeah. we would certainly uh, prefer that you decided the case right. solely on the private right of action right. if the alternative right. were a holding that the right. substantive prohibitions didn't apply here. Yeah. Um, Mr. Reichstein, you, you urge deference to the SEC's interpretation uh, in administrative adjudications? Uh, yes. Do you, well, you have anything other than those Two proceedings over the last 35 years? Those are the two uh, administrative adjudications. The SEC's administrative adjudicatory authority um, is uh, limited uh, to uh, people involved in the securities industry. A lot of these frauds uh, that uh, happen are, don't involve people that are uh, registered broker-dealers and the like. Um, there are numerous civil actions that the SEC has brought where uh, it's taken the same um, approach the SEC versus Berger case that we cite in our brief is one of them. Um, I can uh, name some others. There's uh, SEC versus Wolfson, uh, which is a, a case that's in the District Court of Utah, um, and SEC versus Shein in the Southern District of New York, SEC versus Banger in the Northern District of Illinois. Okay, that's Those involve international boiler room schemes uh, of the kind that uh, I was uh, alluding to before, where masterminds in the United States basically direct um, agents that they've got in countries like Thailand or Spain to, uh, to make false statements and engage in high-pressure selling to target uh, investors in other countries. Sometimes they... Uh, induce them to engage in transactions in still other countries. So, Thank you, Mr. Roberts. Uh, Mr. Dubbs, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. Let me begin with Justice Alito's question, and I promise to get back to Judge Friendly and the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, as to uh, — we have alleged that in uh, — that effectively ministerial activities did occur here. The Second Circuit held interpreting our complaint that the numbers were mechanically incorporated. That's as close to ministerial as you get. We used in the complaint the word adopted. We said that they were asleep at the wheel. The, the meaning is the same, that the num there were no checkpoints. The checkpoints are illusory. If there was a checkpoint, the guard was asleep at the checkpoint, and the MSR number went right through the checkpoint. That is, there, those are the allegations, and we should be able to stick with the allegations. Now, turning to the statute, my colleague indicated that the language with respect to foreign and interstate commerce and so on, based on the Aramco decision, was boilerplate. That's wrong. In this statute, those specific statutory approaches towards stopping fraud are in the substance of the statute. They're not in the jurisdictional statute. That's important. That's why that's different. As to the LISCO example and the Birch example, what LISCO shows is a long chain of causation because LISCO involved an American, not a foreigner, which was very important under Judge Friendly's typology. And in LISCO, you had this extended line of causation beginning with representations in the United States about a friendly tender offer. Then there was a phone call, maybe in London, maybe in the United States. And then there was a command by Saul Steinberg to his investment bankers, go into the London Stock Exchange and start to buy. That extended line of causation would not pass muster under the direct cause test. The direct cause test, as this Court is using it in the RICO area under cases like HEMI, that would not pass muster. What that shows, and Judge Friendly said that if you have a foreign plaintiff, the direct cause test is appropriate, that shows that the direct cause test is narrower, it's a screening device, and it limits the possibilities 
for, uh, when you have a foreign plaintiff. Now, that is a proper way to cabin the private cause of action. Taking an eraser to the statute and saying all the only words that count are on an exchange doesn't do it. If you're going to stay, keep a linkage between the private cause of action and the express words of the statute. So if that can't do it, what are the other tools? And the other tools are the direct cause test. And this uh, court has been very ably working through some of these difficult fact patterns uh, in, in the RICO area. Now, in this case, there is not the problem that there is in HEMI. There's not the intervening cause. You have a related party, NAB, that may or may not be involved, uh, that allegedly is breaking the chain of causation. It is, has to be, under that doctrine, a totally third party, as it was in HEMI, where you had the state of New York, the city of New York, and you had all these bouncing balls going back and forth. This is a straight shot between that MSR being fabricated in Florida and going on to the financial statements. There is no intervening cause. And even if we assume that in some senses it was normal to look at those financial statements, that in and of, of itself is, is fatal. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you, Your Honor. Case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.